You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Well, uh, good morning. Uh, so glad to have you here. Uh, if I don't know you, my name is Brian. I am uh, the lead pastor here at Grace City. And so thanks so much for uh, being here with us this morning. Uh, we're closing out. Uh, so we're progressing kind of into uh, the holiday season. So like it's upon us. Like we're, we're all just go ahead and get ready. I'm waiting on the Christmas tree cakes, the little Debbie crumb, just waiting on that moment. They come out on the grocery store, they're mine. All right, so um, we're uh, progressing into the holiday season. So we're kind of coming to uh, the tail end of a series that we went walking through for the last uh, few weeks or so uh, called Alternative Community. Uh, it's essentially a series about um, how do we be uh, thoughtful Christians? Like, how do we be uh, people who kind of look at the, the kind of cultural moment that we're in and recognize the cultural moment that we're in, recognize the fact that the moment that we live in shapes us in some really significant ways. The city that we live in shapes us in some really significant ways. Uh, all of these things have a type of formation that's going on. And how do we look at all of that and go, okay, how do we, how do I, distinctly live out the way of Jesus, the life and the teachings of Jesus in this moment, right? So I'm not thinking about how to live out the teachings of Jesus in the 1960s. It's not in the 1960s or the 70s or the 80s. You're like, no, how do I live in the way of Jesus in 2022, uh, specifically if, if you live here in Boston or New England, in Boston, in New England, um, in this particular time that we find ourselves in? Uh, this is the series that we've been looking at. How do we, how do, we do this in a way that honors God, um, that shows God that we um, are seeking to live in his way? Uh, Dallas Willard, so Dallas Willard is an, an author. He writes a lot about spiritual formation, and we talk a lot about spiritual formation here. Um, spiritual formation is basically um, like life with God. How, do you, how are we shaped in life with God? And he has this quote that I came across this past week that I was like, man, that is... Um, he's stating spiritual formation in a, in a negative sense, right? So he has lots of de different kind of definitions about being formed into the image of God, being formed through the life of Jesus. But he's gonna state this particular statement about spiritual formation in a negative way. But I think it, it perfectly lands on what we've been talking about over the last uh, few weeks. And so I'll read it for us, it'll be on the screen as well. This is what Dallas Willard says about spiritual formation. He says, Christian spiritual formation is inescapably a matter of recognizing in ourselves the idea system or systems of evil that governs the present age and the respective culture or various cultures that constitute life away from God. Okay, so again, thinking about in a defining spiritual formation in the kind of a negative sense is he says, okay, what does life um, with God uh, look like? What does it mean to um, be formed in a way that would be honoring to God that looks like Jesus? Like, what is that? What is a, a part of that? Because there's lots of things that go along with that. And he says, well, one of the ways in which we look more like Jesus is that we recognize in ourselves, and this is a lot of the work that we've been doing over the last few weeks, is that we recognize in ourselves the idea systems, and he says evil idea systems, that governs the age or the cultural moment that we're in um, that constitute life away from God, that, that are seeking to pull us away from life with God. 
So he says a lot of our Christian discipleship is going, oh, sh- oh gosh, I'm, I am, I've been shaped and formed. What? <laughs> I've been shaped and formed. You guys are so dirty. All right, so um, I've been shaped and formed in certain ways, right? Like clearly you guys have been shaped in bad ways, <laughs> formed evil ways. Um, now I'm distracted. He, he basically says this, okay. <laughs> he says, um, the work that we have to do as Christians uh, is we have to go, this thought that's living inside of me is not from God. Um, this way in which I'm living, this way in which I'm approaching life, this way in which I'm approaching my job, this way in which I'm approaching relationships or finances or sexuality or whatever it is, it's formed and shaped by something that's not God. That is Christian formation. That is Christian discipleship. That it is all of these other things, these more positive things like life with God, like scripture reading, like prayer and meditation and um, journaling and Sabbath and fasting. It's all of these types of things, giving, it's all of these types of things but it's also recognizing the systems and the evil systems which have shaped you. And you say, that is not from God. That is reverse from what life with Jesus looks like. And so a lot of the series that we've been looking at is kind of saying, okay, our culture is embracing a type of um, careerism. That's like you go after your job and your vocation and you build, 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 and you consume, consume, consume. But life with God and life with Jesus says, it's not about a posture of consuming, it's about a posture of contributing. So it's not what can I take from Boston, but it's what can I give to Boston, right? Or or the cultural moment, um, the cultural moment would say, uh, pick a a side. be shaped by this side and be informed by this side. It could be the right or it could be the left or or wherever we're at on that kind of spectrum. Maybe it's that political spectrum. And and once you pick your side, you you rage and you yell and scream because your side's the greatest and everyone else is demonic. But the way of Jesus and life with God says to develop a posture of hospitality towards all people regardless of whether they align with you and every kind of viewpoint that you align with. Um, This is a lot of what spiritual formation is and life with God is. It's saying, I see this, um, I see the, the rage, the anger, the anxiety of our day, and yet God's called me to embrace um, emotional health. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to do the necessary work to do that. This is the this, this series that we've been in, um, this series on what does it mean to be an alternative community. Uh, the Bible passage that I want to look at this morning uh, comes from James. I read it earlier. It's James 22 through 25. And if you've ever read the book of James, uh, the book of James is not a book where you need to pull out like Bible help and commentary and uh, you don't need to get underneath the Greek of uh, the book of James. Um, it just says what it says. Uh, so you're not, you don't have to read it and go, I'm confused about what you're talking about here. Uh, of any book of the Bible, it's like just, it, it just in a lot of ways punches you right in the mouth. Um, it's just straightforward. 
And, and so the, I think this is such an appropriate way to kind of end this series. And it's also an appropriate way to kind of set up the topic that we're going to look at this morning. But I'll read again for us just because I want it to land and then we'll kind of drop into it. He says, be doers of the word, James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. He says, you deceive yourselves when you do that. Because anyone who's uh, someone who hears the word, but is not a doer of the word, is like someone who looks at his own face or her face in the mirror. And then when he looks at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. He's like, that, he's like, that doesn't make sense. Verse 25. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Okay, so, so James, um, brother of Jesus, he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's, he's imploring early uh, Christians, this is who he's writing to. He's imploring them and he's simply saying to them, don't see the, 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 the writings that we have, so both the Old Testament writings and then what we would later come to understand is the, the writings of Paul and Peter, the gospel, um, uh, the gospel accounts that we have of Jesus' life, these narratives that we have of Jesus' life. He's saying, don't simply look at those for, as uh, just simply an intellectual thing to understand, but see those as a way of life. And so he's saying to his readers, you can't read these things about God, about um, caring for the marginalized, and go, that's really awesome, and then not actually do that. You, you can't, can't read about these, these things about um, loving neighbor, not being slanderous or, or gossip or not, not doing, you can't read about those things and go, yes, I agree with that, Jesus. That's a really great way to do that. And then turn around and do that. James says, it's like you're looking at a mirror. He's using that imagery because he's saying the, the Bible is providing for you a clear way in which to live. So you can read the Bible and then go, okay, this is clarity. So I got all kinds of stuff going on in me I got all kinds of stuff going on in the culture kind of moment that we're in, but the Bible is clarity. So he says, it's like looking in a mirror, seeing clear, and then going away and forgetting what you saw. So he says, be a doer of the word. Don't go after the word as primarily a intellectual um, type of pursuit. So what's the, what's the topic for this morning? Here's, here's where we're closing out. Uh, today we're looking at uh, how do we become a community of justice in a culture of polarization? How do we become a community of justice in a culture of polarization? Uh, now, here's what we can agree on, I think. Uh, I think everyone has an opinion about justice. Like, I think if we were to go around the room, uh, everyone would have an opinion. So what is justice? Whose responsibility to administer justice? Like, what, what does that look like? What's the goal of justice? Right? Like, quite frankly, it can be kind of mind-dizzing if you kind of get into it and we were just going to go around the room and, and say, okay, let's talk about justice for a second. You would say, okay, here is justice. And here's, how, here's how we're going to administer justice. And here's how I think that justice should, should work. Okay, everyone probably has an opinion about it. Of any kind of time period on the face of the earth and any type of uh, generation and generations that exist, you're probably going to have an opinion about it. Now, if you get into the church, it gets even more complex um, because the church has its own kind of uh, cultural ethos, 
once you get into it, right? And so if you're looking at kind of the, the, the perspective and the kind of paradigm of the church, so you have some people on one side of the church that would say, when it comes to justice issues, they would say, just preach the gospel. The gospel. So don't, like everything else is a distraction. Uh, so don't talk about racial injustice. Talk about the gospel. Uh, don't talk about um, the wage gap. Talk about the gospel. Don't talk about global poverty. Talk about the gospel. Uh, talk about just the gospel, like this term, the gospel. That, that's kind of on one side of the spectrum, right? This can tend to be a little bit more the, the fundamental side of the spectrum. They would say, this is our role and responsibility, right? And so you hear that, and I'm like, do you read the Bible? Uh, because the Bible I'm reading says something different than what you're talking about. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, right? Over here, and it's all justice issues. Um, there's very little uh, personal repentance. There's very little holiness of God. It can tend to be a little bit more like progressive Christianity on this side of the spectrum. And, and so they have a perspective on justice uh, that, that honestly is, is mostly justice and maybe not the other stuff. And then on the other end of the spectrum, it's like, just talk about Jesus. And you're like, well, how do you talk about Jesus and not justice? I'm finding that very difficult the more I read my Bible. And so even inside the church, so let's take it out of the culture, the kind of secular culture that we live in, even inside the church, there's this paradigm where you're like, whoa, how am I to navigate this as someone trying to faithfully live um, the way of Jesus? How am I supposed to do that? Okay. The, the good news is, so throughout the history of the church, we see the church, we see men and women in the church engaging in these issues. Like we have a pretty long runway of Christian faith at this point that we can point back to over the last 2000 plus years. And, and we can see it. Like you can see over the horizon, these incredible men and women who've stepped up when they've seen injustice and they've they sought to right wrongs that are existing and, and we, can, we can appeal to them. We can look at them and we should be studying them and, and taking our cues from them. The other reality is we have the Bible. The Bible talks a lot about justice issues. There's a couple of things here. Let's look at the Old Testament and then we'll look at the New Testament. Uh, Isaiah chapter one, 11 through 17. So it'll be on the screen as well. So um, this is the opening of the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is probably the most um, well-known prophets in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah is probably one of the most quoted books uh, in the, the Bible. And so this is the very beginning of that. Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God. He is issuing an indictment on the people of God, and it's directly related to the role of issue in life with God. So this is what I'm gonna say, Isaiah 1, verse 11. He says this, "'What are all of your sacrifices to me?' asked the Lord. "'I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams "'and the fat of well-fed cattle. "'I have no desire for the blood of bulls, "'lambs, or male goats.'" So their primary way of, of living life with God, of worshiping God, um, in the Old Testament was through a, a complex sacrificial system. So he's talking about the way in which they relate to God and the way in which they worship God, verse 12. He says, when you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand the iniquity of with a festival. Verse 14, I hate your new moons and your prescribed festivals. 
they have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. He's talking about temple worship. Anytime you have Sabbath, new moons, festivals, he's talking about the temple worship. He says, I'm tired of putting up with them. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I refuse to look at you. Even if you all offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Now, if God is speaking to you, this is not what you want him to say to you, right? It would be as if God dropped into our gathering this morning and he's like, please stop singing, please. Like, don't offer your prayers to me. Put your hands down. Stop with the show. He's essentially saying to them, the words that you're offering to me, they're doing sacrifices, doing prayers. He's saying the words and the actions that you're offering to me are empty. They mean nothing to me. Actually, they don't mean, if they meant nothing to me, he would be indifferent, but he's not indifferent. It's actually angering him to say one thing through worship and through a, a system that he's given them and to not actually live in a way that would be characteristic of one living with life with God. So he says, stop. Now it gets more interesting, down to verse 16. So he's unhappy with the Israelites. He's unhappy with their disobedience. Um, look what he says, Isaiah 1, 16 through um, 17. He says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, and stop doing evil. Now verse 17. He says, learn to do what is good. Pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So he says, don't bring your empty worship to me, your songs to me, your prayers to me, your sacrifices to me. He says, what I actually want is not your empty words, although those things, right, worship it has value, but those things alone don't characterize life with God. So he's like, what, what does characterize life with God? What's well, to do good, it's to do justice, it's to defend the oppressed, it's to love the one without the father, it's to plead the widow's case, pursue justice for her. Another Old Testament passage that um, very much quoted when it comes to justice uh, is another prophet um, other than Isaiah. This is Micah 6, 8. So he says, mankind, he has told each of you what is good, and what it is the Lord requires of you. So you're like, okay, what is life with God look like? What does God require of me? What, what, what's good for me to do? Michael responds on behalf of God, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. What's pleasing to God? To act justly, walk in humility, love faithfulness. Now, we could go on and on and on with the Old Testament. And God's desire for his community to be a community of justice, to be a community that is addressing the needs of the marginalized, addressing the needs of the powerless, addressing um, the, being the voice for the voiceless ones. It's all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the scriptures. The, the ethos of the kingdom of God is one that pursues justice. Even, even among a people, and I think this is important as we think about it later, but 
even among a people that for the most part never had the cultural power of their day. What about the New Testament? So New Testament, Matthew uh, chapter six, one through four. We've talked about the Sermon on the Mount before. I think um, the, the greatest set of teachings that, that, that exist of any teachings that are out there. So this is Matthew five, six, and seven. You can read the Sermon on the Mount. And look what Jesus says, Matthew six, one through four. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by everyone. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. So he says, their reward is this. Like, good job. Congratulations. Did your thing. He says, that's the reward. Verse three. He says, but when you give to the poor... Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He'll, get, he'll reward you for this way of life. Now, I don't want to so much focus on the direct teachings of Jesus, right? So Jesus is saying to them that when you give, this is the way that you give. You don't draw attention to yourself. You're not doing that. I'm not necessarily interested in that, although there's a ton of value in that. I'm more interested in the fact that Jesus, in his teaching, and remember that the Sermon on the Mount is primarily about what does a life with God look like. It's primarily about how to be an alternative community in the day that they find themselves in. So in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's doing what? Not, not only is he giving instructions on how to give to the poor, but he's assuming they're giving to the poor. Like if you look at the text, he doesn't say if you give to the poor, give this way. He says when you give to the poor, give this way. He is assuming that if you're someone living uh, life with God and the life and the teachings of Jesus, you're giving, you're caring for the poor, you're caring for the marginalized. And he's simply saying, let me give you instructions on how to do that. Not do this, but here's how you do this. See that? It's nuanced, but it's there. That's what he's saying. Uh, Paul, um, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament letters that we have. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, um, Romans, uh, all these, 1 and 2 Timothy, a lot of the, he was a former persecutor of the church, became a Christian, um, became an uh, influential leader in the church. And so Paul um, is going to Jerusalem. So here's what was happening in the early days of the church. So you would have people coming out of the Jewish faith that were now uh, uh, um, following now the life and the teachings of Jesus. So they're becoming Christians. And then you had Gentiles who were not of Jewish descent, who had their kind of pagan ways in which they were living. And then they were kind of coming into the churches together. And so you had this kind of mixture of people that were living two very different lives. And so as you can imagine, the early New Testament leaders, these men and women are trying to figure out how to navigate this, this like life uh, with people from all over the end of the spectrum. And so we have one um, passage, this is in Galatians chapter two, where Paul is going to the church at Jerusalem and they're trying to figure out um, doctrinal issues. So he's trying to figure out, do my Gentile brothers need to be circumcised? They're like, no. Um, and then, the, and then the, they're, they're also trying to figure out, okay, what are the dietary laws that we need to follow? What are the, like they're, they're trying to make sense of this, this process. 
And so he goes to Jerusalem, Paul does, and they have this big discussion, again, over kind of doctrinal issues. And look what he says, Galatians 2, verse 10. So he's, he's, le- he's telling us about this meeting in his book, uh, in his letter to the church at Galatia. And he says this, they asked, verse 10, Galatians 2, 10, they asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. Okay, so Paul's coming out of, he had taken, um, uh, he had taken um, some others with him, some other Gentile brothers with him. And they're having this deep kind of theological argument and discussion. You gotta imagine this was a passionate discussion over like, no, we can hold these kind of Jewish dietary laws. And, and, and then the other side is like, what do we do about, you know, in this intense kind of de- doctrinal debate. And it's almost like on their way out, they're like, oh, hey, by the way, remember the poor. It feels so out of place. Because they're like, what did they tell you to do, Paul? Like, what, what was their instruction? Like, give us instruction for the church. Like, help us know. And he goes, oh, um, they just uh, reminded us and asked that we would remember the poor. Um, James, back to the book of James, James 1, 27. Uh, James says this, pure an undefiled religion before God the Father is this. Remember, James is a book that kind of punches you in the mouth. It just is what it is. It says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You don't have to do orphan care or widow care or refugee care or care for the marginalized. You don't have to do any of that and go, is God honored by this action? You don't have to ask that question. Like, is God displeased that I'm loving refugees? That's not a question you have to ask. Yes. Is God pleased that I'm caring for the widows? Yes. And the poor? Yes. So James saying, this is, you want to know what undefiled and pure religion is. And this is what it is. James 2, 14 through 20. He continues on. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters? If someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? If a brother or a sister, so let me set it up. So he says, um, he's gonna get into this kind of faith and works debate. And he's gonna set this, this, uh, this next statement up or the next kind of situation up. And he's essentially gonna say, if someone says they have faith, but the faith doesn't affect how they live, do they really have faith? This is the argument. Now look at the example that he gives to determine whether someone has real faith, to determine whether someone's actually living life with God and actually following the life and teachings of Jesus. Here is the example that he gives. It's telling, verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed. Great. But you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, Faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? So he says, life with God produces a type of life um, that looks like life with God. 
uh, Martin Luther, the German reformer, the one who now the thesis. Uh, he's famous for, he actually hated the book of James, by the way. He thought it was too much a focus on works. Um, but he's not here. I disagree with him, but he's not here to disagree with. Um, he's famous for saying that we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Right? So we have a faith that um, we're saved by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. It's a faith that's seeking to care for our neighbors and care for justice issues. Uh, Tim Keller wrote an article recently. The article is entitled this. It's about justice. He says, a biblical critique of secular justice and uh, critical theory. A biblical critique of secular justice and critical theory. That's a pretty extensive article. We can link it online, but I'm just going to read it now while you all sit here together. A um, couple of things here. Uh, it's a pretty comprehensive thing. Uh, one of the things that he says, I'm not going to read it in case you didn't pick up on that, but um, so, so here's, what, here's one of the things he said that I think is helpful. We don't have time to get into all of this, but, but he basically says every kind of cultural thought system, every worldview is seeking to answer the question, how do we live in a just society? This is not just a church thing. It's not just a, a Christian thing. It's not just a way of Jesus thing, but, but worldviews in general and thought, like thought life in general is seeking to answer the question, how do we live in a just society? And so one of the things that he does, again, you can go and read it, but he kind of looks all the way from the, the end of the spectrum, right? From Marx, hum, like you just kind of see the whole spectrum. And then he identifies you kind of these various views. You see these at the bottom. And so he says, so for some justice is about freedom. Uh, for some justice is about fairness. For some justice is about happiness. For others, justice is about power, right? So he would say in 2022, the justice is essentially about who has power. And we could, you can, we could probably all affirm that. That's kind of the justice of the day is about who has power and who doesn't have power. There have been other thoughts previous to the postmodern thought that more justice was about we should all be happy and how do we get to happiness or how do we get to fairness or how do we get to freedom, right? Now, all these things have good things about them. There's like pieces in there where you're like, okay, yeah, that's good. Um, but they also all have... Uh, biblical critiques against them as well, that some of them are overlapping and some of them are different. Again, we don't have time to get into them. But what I primarily want to do with the little bit of time that we have left um, is I want to kind of look at uh, the essentials to biblical justice, the essentials to biblical justice, uh, because the thing about this is like, yes, our culture is trying to answer this question, but so does the Bible. So does life with God. And so here are the five things I want to look at um, just briefly that we'll kind of summarize. The five elements of biblical justice. Keller will get into these in a really deep level. But uh, community, equality, corporate responsibility, individual responsibility, and advocacy. First one, community. Uh, community, here's the kind of the thought that goes around community. This is a biblical thought. We see it in Scripture. It's the thought that others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give it voluntarily. Others have a claim on my wealth, so I must give it voluntarily. Now, some of you read that and you're like, no, <laughs> right? <laughs> like base level, you know, and, and I read it and I'm like, oh, do I agree with that? I mean, that feels hard and weird. And I work pretty hard for my wealth. Do others really have a claim on my wealth? Biblical justice would say yes. Um, 
the Bible would say anything that we have that's been given to us is from God, is God. Therefore, God determines the means by which we use it. Old Testament scholar, um, he was looking at the, the teaching in the book of Proverbs. Let's just take the book of Proverbs for a second. So he's taking the book of Proverbs and he's looking at this individual who would be called righteous in the book of Proverbs. And this was, his, this was his summary throughout the book of Proverbs of someone who's considered righteous. He says, the righteous are the people who are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of the community. And then the wicked on the other end of the spectrum, again, in the book of Proverbs, the wicked on the other end of the spectrum are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. So we're gonna summarize the book of Proverbs, you would say, the righteous one says, I'm going to disadvantage myself to help the community. The wicked one would say, I'm going to disadvantage the community to help myself. Uh, we did the book of Ruth not too long ago, right? Maybe you were here for that, maybe you weren't here for that, but um, the book of Ruth is a really beautiful story. But one of the things that we see play itself out in the book of Ruth is something called, uh, it's basically the, the gleaning laws that um, God had placed uh, in the Old Testament. And so in the story of Ruth, uh, what do you see happen? Um, you see this law go into effect. Now, what was the law? Basically, God had instructed his people that when you're gleaning in the harvest field, some of you are like, what is gleaning, right? Okay, so you're in the harvest field, you're, you're, you're taking, um, pro okay, so produce comes from a field with seeds. Okay, so, all right. So the gleaning laws were basically like this. If you were going through the field and you were taking, again, they have machines, it's not this clean kind of process, but it's like if you're going through and you're harvesting and you drop something, the law would actually say, given by God, they say, leave it. Leave it for those who don't have a means to get food, who don't have a means to get wages, leave it. Even, even you, it, there was even like, you could leave it on the stock for them to come, come alongside of and collect on the ground behind you or collect um, after you've left. We see this play itself out in the book of Ruth. This is how she meets Boaz. She's in his field and she's gleaning for her mother-in-law and herself, Naomi, right? These were the, the gleaning laws. Why, why was this the case? Well, it was the case because God was saying to his people, my heart, this is what justice is, right? Justice is not primarily about addressing injustice as much as it is about revealing the heart of God. Like it's not primarily about seeing some type of like evil and wrong in front of you as much as it is about showing and revealing to the world that this is the God we love and serve. This is his heart. And so he says, leave it, although it could disadvantage you to leave that much produce, right? I mean, over time, think about that. That much that you leave for just people to come through your fields? Like in 2020, that, 2022, that is unthinkable to allow someone to come through and take your, your hard-earned harvest, right? But biblical justice essentially says that we're stewards of what God has given us. We're stewards. Some of you are like, here's a dollar. Here's what I got, you know? Some of you are like, I, I will be generous with what I have and what I have is a turkey sandwich and you can have it, right? Others of you have a, a stronger ability, but it's all God's. It's all God's. The second thing that we see, the second uh, element of biblical justice is equality. Uh, everyone must be treated 
equally and with dignity. Leviticus 24, 22. Again, this is God in the Old Testament. You're to have the same law for the resident alien, the native, because I'm the Lord your God. Isaiah 33, 15, he says, the one who lives righteously and speaks rightly, who refuses profit from extortion and whose hand never takes a bribe. Um, here's one of the things that we know about our culture. Um, our culture, if you didn't know, values monetary wealth, like, like it does. Uh, many decisions get made based on how much money you have and how much resources that you have. So think about this for a second, because it directly plays into an unjust society. Um, so if you're an individual with enough money and enough resources, you can get the decisions that you want made. And the reverse of that is if you're an individual without the wealth and without the resources, what's the reverse of that? It's much harder to get the decisions and the outcomes that you want. And so God says it's a responsibility of his people, no matter where you're at on the, that spectrum, that all people are treated equally regardless of what they can do for you, regardless of what they can provide for you, regardless of their network, regardless of their net worth, regardless of any of those things, um, you're to treat them with equality. This is, this is biblical justice. We, you see it all throughout the scripture. Third thing that we see, um, so we, we see that uh, others have a claim on my wealth, so we give it voluntarily. We see that everyone must be treated equally and with dignity. The third thing that we see is a, what's called corporate responsibility, is that I am sometimes responsible for and involved in other people's sins. Uh, we see throughout the scriptures that sometimes God holds families, groups, and nations corporately responsible for the sins of individuals. We, we see it in Scripture. Daniel repents for sins committed by his ancestors, although there's no evidence that he personally participated in those. That's Daniel uh, chapter 9. In 2 Samuel 21, God holds Israel responsible for injustices that were done by King Saul, even though he was dead at the time that God brought these out. Joshua 7, number 16, God holds whole families responsible for the sin of one member. 1 Samuel 15, 2, and Deuteronomy 23, 3, and 8, he holds members of the current generation of a pagan nation responsible for the sins committed by their ancestors many generations before. There's at times in which, this is corporate responsibility, that I am sometimes responsible for, not always, but I am sometimes responsible for and involved in other people's sins. Um, why is this true? Why is this a true thing? Well, three reasons, essentially, that this is true. Um, there's a corporate responsibility. Achan's family, in Joshua chapter 7, we get a story about Achan. Uh, who, who, um, he steals from God. He does something that's wrong, and his whole family is killed. And Achan's family did not do the stealing, but they helped him become the type of man who would steal. And God saw that they had built in him Again, not always the case, not always the case of all families, right? Don't hear that, that I'm, if, you, if you're like brother is crazy, it's your family's fault. It's not what I'm saying. Um, but I'm saying there are times in which, although they didn't participate in the sin, they, they made him into a man or made her into a woman who would do that. So there's a type of corporate responsibility there. We see a corporate participation that, that sinful actions, they not only shape us, but they shape the people around us that when we sin, it affects people around us. It reproduces sinful patterns. 
So our individual kind of sin then produces a type of sinful pattern that then shapes kind of a cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Although we weren't there, we're helping to do this. And then there's um, all of us would have to recognize institutionalized sin, that we live with institutionalized sin, Um, that there are ways of life that have been, um, that are weighed in favor of the powerful and the oppressive over those with less power. This would be examples of the criminal justice system. This would be commercial practices such as high interest uh, loans and unfair, uh, unfair low or delayed wages. Like these are systems in place that do more evil than any one individual within a system may intend or be aware of. See that? Like this, these things exist. And we have to take some responsibility for these things. It's like, oh, I didn't do that, but I got to do the work to change that. I got to own that. A lot of stuff I got to own. Fourth thing is individual responsibility. The Bible very much teaches that I am, I am finally responsible for my sins, but not for my outcomes. Um, the Bible does not teach that your success or your failure is, whole, is, is fully due to your individual choices. Poverty, um, it could be brought on by personal failure, but it could also exist because of um, environmental factors, famine, wage. It could be sheer injustice. We're not in complete control of our life outcomes. It's just true. We can't look at someone who perhaps is um, in, a, in a place, um, in, in a difficult place in life and go, your actions led you to this place. It's not always true. It's not always that clean cut. As much as we would like it to be, as much as the YouTube video would say, that's not true. It's not. But we also have sins. Um, despite the reality of corporate responsibility and evil, the Bible very much says that our salvation lies in what we do as individuals. You've been shaped by your family, but it is now your responsibility to recognize the unhealthy shaping of your family and to stop it, right? So you can say, uh, my family has a history of racism. And you can say, it stops now. Stops now. This is my personal responsibility. You can say, my family has a history of um, navigating our finances in such a way navigating our work in such a way. And you say, no, this stops here. This stops now. There's an individual responsibility to address the injustice that you see in the cultural moment. This is biblical justice. Fifth and final thing, there's advocacy. Uh, The Bible has a special concern, we've already seen it, has a special concern for the poor and the marginalized. Is a special concern. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. The Bible never says, speak up for the rich and powerful. And the reason that the Bible doesn't say, speak up for the rich and powerful, it's not because the rich and powerful are wrong. It's just because they don't need you to speak up for them. They don't need you. The, the systems are... are bent towards them. The the playing field is not a level playing field. We advocate for the poor for equality. We we seek to give more financial, social, and cultural capital or power to those who have less. This is biblical justice. This is what it looks like. This is what we see throughout the scripture. 
again, it's not more about righting wrongs. It is about revealing the character of God. Two dangers that I see when it comes to biblical justice, just quickly, two dangers. Uh, we either get paralyzed because of the enormity of justice or we outsource our responsibility to pursue justice. So I don't know if you're like me, but in the last few years, you kind of look at like the big scope of everything that's going on. And you're like, that's so huge. What can I do? You're like, the wage gap, what, what do I do? You know, you're like these systems that are, um, uh, have been built and created to benefit a certain individual and a certain type of individual that have been institutionalized for a long time. I'm just like, what, what do I do? And I'm so um, paralyzed that I don't do anything. And I talk to people, they're so paralyzed that they don't do anything. Now they're angry, they got anxiety, they got fear, but they're not doing anything else. So this is what I started doing. Uh, I just started doing, okay, what can I do? Like, who am I? And I just started assessing. I'm like, I'm a dad. I can take my daughter to the living room of a recently moved Afghan family of six, and she can sit there and listen to me have a conversation about their life. I can't control all the, the issues in Afghanistan, but I can drive 15 minutes from my house and sit in the living room of six people who were pushed out of their home, who have nothing, no jobs, who lack the, the um, cultural power to navigate in this place, and my daughter can sit in that living room with me. I can do that. I can do it. I'm a pastor. I can talk to my church. I can lead my church in such a way that we're addressing issues. I can do that. I am. This is going to be shocking to a lot of people. I'm a white male. So I am. And so when all the kind of the, the racial stuff that was going on and, and was like, okay, what do I do? Like, how do I navigate this space? And I was like, I know what I can do. I have great relationships with black brothers and sisters. I can navigate in white spaces where that would be harder. And I can advocate for them. And I can, I can have those conversations. I, see what I'm doing? I'm just like, what can I do with who I am as an individual? Don't be paralyzed by the enormity of the justice issues that you don't ever do anything. Just survey what can you do. Uh, the second thing, that, um, second thing that, that I see happen a lot is we, um, we run the danger of outsourcing our responsibility to pursue justice, right? So you're like, here's $25, justice check, right? You're like, poverty, here's 20 bucks, check, right? Like I can sing to God now of outsourced justice. You see that? I think, listen, giving is good. Like, so um, a couple of Sundays now, we're gonna do a Compassion Sunday. So uh, Compassion's um, a ministry and organization that my wife has been a part of for 10 years now. Uh, and they, they educate, they care for children. They, it's an incredible thing. We're ha we'll have a Compassion Sunday in a couple of weeks where you can take a child and do a child sponsorship. And you can do that for the rest of their, until they kind of grow up into adulthood. You can be in relationship, care for someone. That's a, a sponsorship issue, right? So I'm not saying a couple of weeks from now, when we do that, you stand in the corner and you say, this is, this is outsourcing justice, right? <laughs> I'm turning over the compassion tables. No, there's value in that. We should do it. We should do it. We should vote. Voting matters. But in some ways, we use it to outsource justice. We do. When you deeply entangle yourself with someone or something, it will inform and shape how you live. 
when you get on the ground level and have dinner with someone or talk with someone who's down and out, who's marginalized, who's poor, who's a lot of hard things that have happened in their background, both for personal standpoint and systems that have worked against them, it will change your perspective. They, be, they become people made in the image of God, not a statistic. So I wanna lead and be a part of a community. I wanna be an individual who leverages justice in a way that honors God.